Today we are continuing with the problem of God and we are talking about Jesus. Anyone who knows me knows I love to talk about Jesus, so I'm so excited that this is the topic that I have been given and entrusted to speak about. And so today we're going to be talking about Jesus and asking the question, was Jesus a real historical person? Was he God? Did he in fact die on a cross and then rise again? And I'm going to be fully open and honest with you right from the start and say that I believe 100% yes to all of those. But I want to dig through some of the evidence that we have both in Scripture and outside of Scripture that indicates that that's true. And I believe that the question of Jesus is a central question for every single person. And if you're sitting in this room and you believe that Jesus is Lord and Savior of your life, then you would agree. But if you're sitting in this room and you have not chosen to follow Jesus, then you might be saying, not really. I don't believe that this question is central to my life because you have chosen not to follow him. But I would propose that if Jesus was real, if Jesus was God, and if he did in fact die on a cross and then rise again three days later, and you've chosen not to follow him, that there are significant implications for your future. John, in the book of John, chapter 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. See, Jesus promises that there is eternal life that is accessible for every person if they choose to follow him. And so if he didn't exist, or he wasn't God, or he didn't die on a cross and raise, raise again, then there's no real loss if you've chosen not to follow him. But if he is real, there's so much at stake. And so that's why I want to take some time. I feel like it would be irresponsible of us, both as believers and people who don't believe, to not look into all of the evidence that's been presented to us because of what's at stake. And so let's dig into this. The first thing that I'm going to look at and talk about is the historicity of Jesus. This is basically a fancy phrase just saying, was Jesus a real guy? Can history demonstrate that there was a man in first century Palestine named Jesus? And I'm pleased to say that most, almost all modern scholars agree that he did, in fact, live. During the early 20th century, there was a theory that became uh, more prevalent called the Christ myth theory. And this theory posited that Jesus was never actually a real, a real person, that in fact he was just a myth. But most modern scholars now have abandoned this theory and do believe that, even if they don't believe Jesus was God, they do believe that he was a real person. The scholar and author of ancient history, Michael Grant, said, we can no more reject Jesus' existence than we can reject the existence of a mass of pagan personages whose reality as historical figures is never questioned. What Michael Grant is saying is that there are uh, people throughout history like Aristotle, Alexander the Great, Cleopatra, and others who we do not question their existence. Some of them were not written about until up to 400 years after their existence, and yet historians never question their existence. And so if Jesus also is written about even less than 100 years after he lived, then we can assume and, and conclude that he did in fact exist. And see, the existence of Jesus is not just talked about about Christians who wrote the Bible or the, the New Testament, but it's actually written about by multiple outside independent sources who weren't Christian. Two of those were a man named Tacitus, who was a Roman senator and historian, 
And the second was a man named Josephus, who was Jewish but chose to work with the Romans, and he was a historian. Both of these men wrote about Jesus but didn't write about him in a positive light. They actually wrote about him and his followers negatively. And so we know that they weren't being influenced by the church because the church, if they were going to have these non-Christians talk about Jesus, they would have said, hey, can you say some good things about him? But he didn't. They didn't. They both wrote negatively about Jesus. But from that negative writing, we know that, in fact, he did exist. Now, additionally, there was never a debate in the ancient world that Jesus existed. Many of the writings of the uh, Jewish rabbis at the time and after denounced Jesus and said that he was an illegitimate child of Mary and a sorcerer. And among pagans, the satiricist Lucian and the philosopher Celsus dismissed Jesus as a scoundrel, but there was no person in in the ancient world that questioned if if Jesus was ever real. So the idea that Jesus didn't exist as a historical person is actually a modern invention and a modern thought. Scholars generally agree on these characteristics of the historical man named Jesus, that he was a Galilean Jew, that his activities were confined to Galilee and Judea, that he was baptized by John the Baptist, that he called disciples, that he had a controversy at the temple, that he was crucified by the Romans near Jerusalem. After his death, his disciples continued, and some of his disciples were persecuted. Graham Stanton, a biblical scholar from Oxford University, writes, Today, nearly all historians, whether Christians or not, accept that Jesus existed and that the Gospels contain plenty of valuable evidence which has to be weighed and assessed critically. There is general agreement that, with the possible exception of Paul, we know far more about Jesus of Nazareth than any first or second century Jewish or pagan religious scholar. What Graham Stanton is saying is that out of the first two centuries after Jesus' life, so for 200 years, we know more about Jesus than any other religious leader except perhaps Paul. So there's lots of evidence that indicates that there was a historical figure named Jesus living in first century Palestine, and he was a religious leader, someone who led a religious movement. Now, historical accounts of Jesus do not talk about lots of details of his life. And so we have to then turn, if we want details about Jesus' life, to the Gospels. But the question then becomes, can we rely on the Gospels to teach us about Jesus? And so I would say this is the reliability of the Gospels. Now, Brittany preached an incredible message on the Bible and its authority in our Problem of God series earlier in January. And so if you haven't listened to that message, I'd really encourage you to go back and listen to it. I'm going to give a brief overview, but she goes way more into detail. So if you're more interested in this, definitely go listen to that. Now, the first piece of evidence that we have that the uh, the Gospels do teach about Jesus' life is that extra-biblical sources, meaning those sources outside of the Bible, never contradict what the Gospels say about Jesus. They only ever confirm what the Bible says about Jesus. So those eight characteristics that we went through earlier that talked about Jesus' life are all mentioned in the Gospels. And things that the Gospels mention that aren't mentioned in extra-biblical sources are not mentioned, and so therefore are not contradicted. Now, the first argument against the Gospels is this idea that they were legends that were created by the Christians after Jesus died. And so they took the facts of Jesus' life, that he was perhaps a good moral teacher or a good guy, 
and that they expanded those and embellished them and made them into these legends that he was the son of God. Now, there's a problem with this, and it's that literary, um, literary experts have run tests to see how long it takes for uh, historical fact to turn into a legend, and they've said that it takes many, many hundreds of years. Jesus was written about less than two generations after his life. And so literature tests show that even two generations is too short a time span to allow legendary tendencies to wipe out historical fact. There's a professor named Professor Sherwin White, and he turns to the Gospels and he states that, the that for the Gospels to be legends, the rate of legendary accumulation would have to be, quote, unbelievable. Simply put, there would need to have been more generations between Jesus' life and when the gospel accounts were written in order for them to be legends. See, the earliest gospel is the gospel of Mark, which was written around A.D. 70, so roughly 50 years after Jesus, um, or roughly 40 years after Jesus' life. Now, a German scholar and, and an expert on the book of Mark, uh, his name is Rudolf Pesch. He argues that the, the, the story of the passion, meaning the last week of Jesus' life leading up to his death, was actually written by another source and that Mark used that source in the writing of his gospel. And Pesh argues that this source was written in AD 37, merely seven years after Jesus' death. Now, the way that he gets about this is by identifying what, how Mark identifies Caiaphas, who was the high priest at the time of Jesus' death. When we read the account, it says that it refers to Caiaphas and simply calls him the high priest. Now, what this indicates is that at the time of the writing, Caiaphas was still the high priest. An example of this for us would be if I, if I refer to the prime minister of Canada, we would all know I was talking about Justin Trudeau without me naming him because he's still the prime minister. In 20 years, if I refer to the prime minister, we would not default to Justin Trudeau unless he's still prime minister, which who knows. But what this is saying is that because Caiaphas finished his term as high priest in AD 37, that would be the latest that that account of the passion story could be written. And so that indicates to us that, again, it could not be a legend because of how soon it was written after Jesus' death. Now, additionally, the church developed out of a Jewish community in Jerusalem. That's where it started. And the Jewish culture was, very, uh, was a very oral culture. They shared all of their stories and histories by oral communication, not written. And so the idea that they would have broken telephone, messed up, or missed the details of Jesus' life doesn't hold up because they had a well-developed culture and system of passing on details and stories accurately because that's how their history worked. See, for us, we have history and stories and, and all of that written down on paper, and so we've lost that culture and that, that ability to pass on details effectively through or oral communication. And so it doesn't make sense that they would have messed things up because they had such a developed structure. Jewish boys, when they were uh, coming into adulthood, memorized the first five books of the Bible, which they knew as the Torah. That's a lot of memorization. So it seems hard to believe that they would have missed the details of Jesus' life. And then finally, there were significant uh, there were significant limits on how they could expand or embellish the story of Jesus because people who knew Jesus during his lifetime were there in the beginning of the church and in the 
passing on of these stories, the apostles, the disciples, the people who lived and saw Jesus live his life were present as those things were being written down. In fact, some of them wrote them down themselves. And so if someone had said, oh, Jesus was blah, 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 they could have said, actually, no, I was there. That didn't happen. So from this evidence, we can see that the Gospels do provide us with a strong historical account of Jesus' life. And again, I'd really encourage you, go back, listen to Brittany's message. She has so much more evidence on this, and I'll just further this point. Now, if we know that Jesus did exist, and we know that the Gospels provide a historical account of his life, then the next question has to become, was he God? Did he claim to be God? And one argument makes the, one argument is that Jesus never said, I am God. And that's very true. He never says, hey, I'm God. But you know what? If he had, that would not have been a revolutionary statement because in Near Eastern, ancient Near Eastern cultures, lots of the religions of that time believed that every person had some level of divinity in them. So for Jesus to have said, I'm God, they would have been like, yeah, same. We all are. And so Jesus claims his divinity not in just his existence, but in where he's come from. He says that he's the son of God, and we have clues for that in Scripture. In Scripture, in John 8, 56 to 58, we read, uh, Jesus is speaking to his, uh, his disciples, and he says, Your father Abraham rejoiced that you would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old and have seen Abraham? Jesus said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now this passage is interesting because it, two things. First is that Jesus says that he has existed previously or before Abraham. But Abraham had lived thousands of years before Jesus. So in order for Jesus to have existed previous to Abraham, he would have therefore had to have existed outside of his human nature and therefore as God. The second thing is he uses the grammatically incorrect term I am instead of the grammatically correct term I was. What this indicates to us is that Jesus is using a name for himself that was applied to God. When uh, Moses has an encounter with God in the burning bush, he asks God what his name is and God says I am who I am. The great I am was a term, a name given towards God, and Jesus adopts that for himself, indicating his divinity. Now, in 1 John 4, verse 2, G, uh, John, the, one of the disciples of Jesus, is writing a letter, and he writes, By this you know the Spirit of God, every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. John here says that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. The fact that he specifies that Jesus has come in the flesh indicates that there would have been a time where Jesus existed not in the flesh, therefore in spirit, therefore as God. And finally, we read a story in Matthew, or a parable that Jesus is telling in Matthew 21, verses 33 to 41. So this is a longer passage, but bear with me. This is the parable of the tenants, and it says, Hear another parable. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. When the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. 
And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent another... Uh, again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When, therefore, the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out of the vineyard to other tenants who will give him fruit in their seasons. In this parable, the vineyard symbolizes Israel. The owner is God, the tenants are the Jewish religious leaders, and the servants are the prophets sent by God throughout history. So there's the vineyard, which is Israel, that is owned by God, that is leased out to religious leaders, the Jewish religious leaders, which at Jesus' time would have been Pharisees and Sadducees. And then there's the servants that God sends who are the prophets to judge and, and correct the religious leaders. And they reject those servants. So then God says, I will send my only beloved son and they will listen to my son. But instead, they kill the son because he's the heir to the vineyard. And so what does this parable tell us about Jesus' understanding of who he was? It indicates that he thought of himself as God's son, his special son, that he was distinct from other prophets, that he was God's final messenger, and that he was the heir to the land, to Israel. Here, Jesus has clearly pointed out that he is God. Now, another piece of evidence that Jesus was divine is the very existence of the church itself. See, again, like I mentioned earlier, the church was founded by Jews, and Judaism is a strictly monotheistic religion meaning they believe in one God and one God only. It was one of those things that made their faith so distinct. And so it doesn't make sense that a group of Jews chose to worship a man and follow a man who said he was God when they believed there was only one God, unless they recognized that he was God. And so why did they choose to follow him? Well, Jews believed that while God didn't have a physical body that exists on, on earth, that he was incarnate in two ways. First was in the temple, and second was in the word, or the Torah. And that they also believed that God would return to Jerusalem, and that he would, um, that he would return to Jerusalem and meet his people one day. And Jesus fills all three of these things. The first is the temple, the place where, this was the place where God resided, where his presence existed, and where sins were forgiven. And Jesus demonstrated that the presence of God resided in him through the performance of signs and miracles. Jesus performs acts that only God could, could act out, and so therefore it demonstrates the presence of God at work within him. And second is that through the performance of signs, they believe that illnesses would have been indicators of sin, and so that Jesus' ability to heal indicates his ability to forgive sin. Now, second is the Torah, which speaks about life with the authority of God, that they believe the Torah was the instructions of God, the authority of God on what life should look like. And Jesus spoke with authority about different areas of life and often would use the Torah. He would take the Torah, he would talk about it, and he would expand on it, and often was we read throughout the Gospels that people referred to how he had the authority of God to speak on those topics 
Matthew 5 is a great indicator of this. He goes through and he'll take, he'll say, you have heard it said, quote the Torah, and then expand on that. So Jesus is then demonstrating his divinity through the word. And then third, God's return to Jerusalem. Prophecies declared that God would return to Jerusalem and that he would ju bring judgment and that he would bring salvation for his people. And Jesus comes into Jerusalem triumphantly on a donkey on Palm Sunday, and he brings judgment through cleansing of the temple and the money changers, and then he brings salvation through his death on the cross. And so for the Jews to have seen Jesus, they would have recognized that he was God, and this is how they were able to follow him. Now, perhaps the most common secular statement made about Jesus is that they be people believe that he existed, but that he wasn't God. The assumption is that he was a good moral teacher who gives us instructions through the Bible, and that following those instructions will lead us to a good life, but he wasn't actually God. And C.S. Lewis economically summarizes this statement and addresses it by saying, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God, but let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. It seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. And so we understand that Jesus existed, we understand that the Gospels provide a reliable account of his life, and we know that Jesus claimed to be God and that his followers, both Greek and Jew, and the Jews would be the least like to, likely to believe it, believed that he was the, the son of God, that he was, in fact, divine. Now, the last area that we're going to spend looking at is the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now, again, there are multiple historical accounts of Jesus' death, both biblical but also extra-biblical. But most skeptical scholars, though they agree that Jesus existed and that he died on a cross, they try to remove the religious or spiritual significance of it and simply say that he caused political unrest and therefore was murdered. Now the question becomes, if Jesus was not a messianic person, if he was not divine, how did they get him onto a, a cross where we know that historically he ended up? The conclusion that we must arrive at then is that if he wasn't messianic or divine, had no reason to cause trouble to the religious leaders in Jerusalem, that he therefore, there must have been a tense political situation in, where, in which any political unrest or problem would have immediately been shut down and that Jesus would have immediately then been crucified. The problem is that there's no real evidence for this. In fact, there's evidence to the contrary. When Jesus comes into Jerusalem, he comes in riding on a donkey. He's hailed as a king. They say that he's going to usher in the kingdom of God on earth. And yet the Romans have no response. They just let it happen. 
Then second, Jesus caused incredible unrest when he goes into the temple, he throws over tables, he makes a whip, and chases people out of the temple. Again, political unrest, and yet the Romans don't respond. And so what this reveals to us is that the Romans were not, con were not concerned with Jesus causing political unrest, and therefore there must have been another reason, which we know from Scripture and other sources was the religious leaders and their problem with Jesus. Both Josephus and the, the Babylonian Talmud, which was a book of Jewish religious instruction, testified to the Jewish authorities' initiative in Jesus' trial. And the Talmud justifies seeking his execution as appropriate action taken against not a political upriser, but a, as a heretic. They believed, and it is recorded historically, that the reason for Jesus' death was his contradicting of the religious leaders and his um, heresy. The primary reason for Jesus' execution was spiritual and religious, not political. Now, the Jewish leaders understood this, and so to Roman ears, a, a heretic would not have been grounds for execution, but a political upriser would. And so the Jewish leaders twisted and, and presented Jesus' claims to be the Son of God and the, as the King of the Jews and to cause their view of him to be political, uh, a politi causing political unrest so that he would be executed. And so because of that, we know that Jesus was a messianic figure, that he was recognized as a messianic figure, and that he was recognized as divine. And the religious leaders didn't like this, and that was his reason for being eliminated. And so we must either accept that Jesus was who he said he was, and therefore presented a threat and was crucified, or we can call him a good moral teacher in which he poses no threat to the Romans and therefore would not have been crucified, which we know is factually incorrect. Since we can accept that Jesus did die on a cross, and that the most rational explanation for his death is his divinity, then we need to turn to the resurrection. There are, again, historical accounts that Jesus was seen by his disciples after his death. Now, historical accounts will present this as saying that the disciples claim to have seen Jesus after he died. One of the theories to try and dismiss this is a theory that Jesus had a long-lost twin brother, and that after his death, that twin brother showed up and pretended to be Jesus. Now, not only does that reach into the absolute realm of ridiculous, but also wouldn't have worked. Because as soon as the Jewish leaders saw this movement of Jesus' followers starting, they would have simply said, hey, here's his body. He's actually dead. Don't listen to that guy. Problem solved. By the way, that, that theory was presented by uh, a guy who is a professor at the University of California, an expert, quote-unquote, expert on this area. Another, re or another theory is that Jesus was not actually dead, that he was in a coma, that he was buried in a shallow grave, and then a few days later came out of that coma, came back to life, or not came back, just woke up and was still alive. Now, not only this also has no 
historical evidence, and in fact contradicts historical evidence that says that he was in fact murdered. What we need to understand about the Romans is that they were efficient and effective at killing people. Sometimes they would kill up to 6,000 people a day. So to posit that he wasn't actually dead contradicts everything we know about Romans. If there's one thing they knew how to do, it was kill people. And so it's ridiculous to assume that they wouldn't have actually managed to kill him. Now a third argument that's made is that Jesus' disciples made up the story of Jesus' resurrection or borrowed the idea of resurrection from another religion and that he was in fact still dead. And this breaks down on three different levels. The first level is this, that the two predominant religions in Jerusalem at the time were Judaism and Greco-Roman paganism. Now Jews didn't believe that resurrection would happen until the end of time. They believed that at the end of time, all people would be raised to life. And so the disciples would not have believed in a singular resurrection unless they had seen it happen. And if they, for some reason, had decided to put away the beliefs that they had had their entire lives and make up the story, they would not have gained a following with the Jewish community because the Jewish community would not have believed that the resurrection was happening unless all people had been resurrected and, of the, and it was the end of the world which became very apparent that it wasn't the end of the world. Now, Greeks and, and Greco-Roman paganism valued the spirit and the mind over the physical body. The idea was that you would escape your physical body, that your physical body held you back, and so that death was escaping and, and the ultimate win. Now, they would not see resurrection as a good thing. It would be regressing. You got to where you were supposed to go, and then you had to go back. And so there, it doesn't make sense that the, that the Jewish leaders would have taken resurrection and made it up. Now, the second reason, or the second argument against this theory is that, again, all that would have needed to happen for the Jewish leaders to stop this is to simply present Jesus' body and say, here he is. And they didn't. They, in fact, accused the disciples of stealing Jesus' body, which indicates that the body was, in fact, missing and that the tomb was empty. Now, the disciples were easily, easily able to refute this by saying that it was guarded by Roman soldiers, which we read in Scripture, so they would not have been able to steal it. And the fact that the enemies of Christianity felt obliged to explain away the empty tomb by the theft hypothesis shows not only that the tomb was known, confirming that Jesus was in fact buried, but also that it was empty. And the third problem with this is that there is, uh, they theorize that there are these myths of dying and rising gods. The problem with that is that in those myths, they, the, the dying and rising gods are merely illustrations of what happens in the natural world and that they're never connected to a historical figure. Jesus was a historical figure. Additionally, there's only two myths that talk about a three-day motif of death and then rising again three days later, one being Osiris and another Adonis. But there were hardly any traces of cults of dying and rising gods in first century Palestine. 
And so it would be a far stretch for the Jewish pe- for the leaders of the church who were devout Jews to have known enough about these cult- these cults to have been able to take their myths and apply them to their own religion. And so as there's no rational argument against the resurrection, we must then as- conclude that it did in fact happen. And further proof of this is the flourishing of the church. When the disciples began to preach the resurrection in Jerusalem and people responded and the religious authorities stood helplessly by, the tomb must have been empty. And the fact that the Christian fellowship founded on the belief on Jesus' resurrection could come into existence and flourish in the very city where he was executed and buried is compelling evidence for the historicity and the truth of his resurrection. And so as we have examined the evidence, we can see that there's lots of proof that Jesus did exist, that he was God, and that he did die on a cross and rise again. And if we, under all, un, if we understand all of this, we are faced with the decision of whether or not to accept Jesus and to follow him. And you know what the beautiful thing is? Not only was Jesus real, not only was he God, not only did he die and rise again, but he loves you. That Jesus came to earth as a baby, lived an ordinary, normal life as a carpenter until the age of 30, became a religious leader with no wealth, no resources, no home, no wife, no family, faced persecution throughout his whole life, died a brutal death on a cross, and then defeated death in the grave and rose again because he loves you. See, the love of Jesus is unconditional. And it's extravagant. And his greatest concern in everything was to have a relationship with you. And so, yes, there's rational, intellectual evidence that he existed. But more than that, each of us in our own souls at some level recognizes that there's something missing. And, and we see that demonstrated all throughout society in the different ways that we try to fill that void and that emptiness and that sense of lack. And Jesus presents an opportunity to fill that void and to fill it permanently and fully. In John 3.16, probably the most quoted Bible verse ever, it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Jesus loves you so much that he's not content just to merely know you in this life, but he wants to know you for all time. And I love what it says in verse 17. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Because you know what? He wants to have eternal life with you, but he also wants to change your life now. He wants the world, not just heaven, the world to be saved through him 
and he lives in each person that follows him, so he wants the world to be saved through you because he loves you. Jesus didn't come to bring condemnation. He did not come to make you feel bad or lesser than or weak. He came because he loves you and he sees potential and purpose in your future because God actually wants you to rise above what is earthly possible for you and he wants to accomplish great things through you and through your life. 